So, guys, thank you so much for just being here. Um, you are, are, are evidence, I think, of God's grace on um, Grace Bible Church, that he would bring men to the church and men who really have a hunger for him, a hunger for his word, uh, have a hunger for fellowship, real fellowship, gospel-centered fellowship. Uh, and um, you guys are such an encouragement. Thank you for making the sacrifice on a Saturday morning to be here. Um, yeah, so just a reminder how we kind of run things. Get up and get down whenever you want, whenever you need. Um, so you're going to need more pancakes later. Just get up and go get them. You're gonna use more. Yeah, because there's a ton over there, okay? So please, um, just get up and get down. It's family style. You remember the bathrooms are down the hall, all the way <coughs> on your left. And uh, does everybody have the handouts from this morning? Um, it's got a fluorescent green um, homework sheet. You need one of those because that's where we're going to be here in just a moment. All right, hey, um, take your notebook and just flip it over on its back. We want to review through the disciplines together. We do this every time together. Uh, Build is all about the men of Grace Bible Church being called out to this place to be together so that we can unite our lives around the spiritual disciplines, the biblical disciplines that we have listed out here. Um, And it all starts with the heart, right? that we want to be and we must be, and you'll even see today more so from God's word, that we have to be men who shepherd our hearts to the word of God in order to meet with the God of the word. Uh, we're not men who are just interested in getting theological facts or uh, winning arguments. or we're not, we're not just men who are interested in putting together a, a, the, the small group study or the message that we have to preach or teach. Um, We don't come to the Word of God primarily to get those things first. We come to the Word of God primarily to meet with God, to know Him, to grow in our love for Him. And um, we have to be those kinds of men. If if we're that kind of, uh, if you're that kind of a man, everything else flows from that. You are a man then who has something to say to people who don't know God and those who are walking with God with you. And you can come alongside them and care for them and and uh, be an encouragement to them, a challenge to them, encouragement to them. So discipline one is all about the heart. Um, the second discipline is um, about the home, about your household relationships. Uh, it's very easy for men to play leapfrog over that relationship of those people that, that the guy lives with. Uh, for many of you, it's your wife, it's your children. Uh, but even when you're single, uh, it's very easy to just not pay attention to the guys that you live with, to your roommates, to you know your other family, maybe you're living at home or whatever. It's easy to think that, you know, I, I don't have to do that. But yet we all have a dream someday, if we're single, about being married. And we won't do it then, in our minds. But we do it every other day of the week, for years before then, with roommates. So the way that I think about it, as my, as my girls get older and, and, um, and keep praying that Jesus will come back before they become teenagers... Is that? <laughs> I'm not joking. <laughs> I should pray that. Yeah. Did any of you other older dads pray that for like your girls? <coughs> yeah. I noticed he didn't answer your prayers. <laughs> but I, I, the thing that I'm interested in for a young man is I want to know what he's like with the people that he lives with. I don't care who they are, if they're just roommates or whatever. 
because I want to see what kind of a man he is in that household, in that among those relationships. He needs to give off the aroma of a man who knows God because of discipline one. And it needs to make an impact on those household relationships. If a guy is a, a complete you know, jerk in the house he lives with, with roommates, I'm not real crazy about my wife be, or my, my daughter becoming his wife uh, and becoming his permanent roommate. That's there's an inconsistency there. So we want to be thinking about the household relationships. Thirdly, then, you're ready to think about the ministry, how you're going to minister the gospel to people um, in the church and outside of the church as well. Uh, and it's not strictly sequential that you can only you move on to Discipline 2 and the household relationships when you've graduated from Discipline 1. You never graduate from Discipline 1, and you never graduate from Discipline 2. So you're going to be stepping into people's lives in the church um, as you are continuing to work on these things. But um, if you think about it, most guys in churches, leadership in churches are, are desperate always for, for men to lead. It's just the way that it is. We always need more men. We always need more men. We always need more elders. We always need more small group leaders. We always need more deacons. We always need whatever it is. And that you get a, a guy who comes in and he's, he's fresh blood and he's He's got lots of energy. He's really excited about the Lord, and he appears to have some gifting. And oftentimes, churches just grab that guy and throw him into a position, and he starts to lead. And nobody's given any thought, including the guy, about whether or not he's actually shepherding his heart to know God through the Word of God. And nobody's done any thinking about his household relationships. Does he really care for people that he lives with? Um, but we got him teaching Bible study because we're desperate. And the next thing you know, an explosion comes down the road uh, that you didn't foresee. And it's unfortunate for the guy because leadership put confidence in him too early. And he put confidence in himself, therefore, too early. And then the church has to deal with a problem because the man has no integrity or because he, his relationships are shot at home or whatever. So we don't want to play leapfrog over our hearts. We don't want to play leapfrog over our household relationships. We want to make sure that we're working through those things, walking through those things, those disciplines. Um, the fourth discipline is the, the biblical qualifications. And in BUILD, primarily, we look at the deacon qualifications in 1 Timothy 3. Now, if you'll notice those um, qualifications when you, when you get a chance to look at them, I encourage you to do this. Most of those qualifications, all of those qualifications fall into one of the first three categories. What is he like as a man of God? Just What's he like in his heart with God? What, what kind of a man is he? Secondly, what, what kind of a man is he with his household relationships? He must manage his household well. Even deacons have to do that. Um, and what's he like with people? How does he deal with people uh, in ministry? Uh, those are you must. So we want you to be a qualified man, and we ultimately want to push you on to be look, setting in front of you the elder qualifications. Wouldn't it be great if, as a result of uh, of being giving thought to it and being prayerful and being intentional in your life that someday all of you men would be an elder in the church shepherding all of you being elders in this church what would be wrong with having 40 elders in a church man that's unheard of Carolback's pretty close isn't it? Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, we only have 17 <laughs> but, like it, but for instance Grace in LA 10,007 to 10,000 people go there they have like less than 40 elders that's not enough people to shepherd 10,000 people. Now, you don't need one shepherd for every sheep. Okay, right? But that's still a bit off. Um, but we would love to have 
all of you men elder qualified. And that's, and that's in God's hands, but you get to participate by being intentional and placing your life before God's word and, uh, in that way. So discipline five is the biblical theological practical. <clears throat> it's all about um, you uh, and us, whenever we're together, being able to deal with any biblical issue that comes up that we want to, any theological issue that comes up, any practical ministry issue that comes up. We just want to be men who are disciplined to care for those things and not overlook them and not hide from them, not be scared of them, but attack them and deal with them. Okay. And then lastly, this leadership development that we're doing here, what BUILD is all about, it, 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 it yes, it could probably be fit for any church out there, but this leadership development that we're doing here is specifically for one church, it's for Grace Bible Church. And so you need to know and understand what the vision and the purpose of this church is. We have a biblical vision and we have a gospel purpose. The biblical vision is built around uh, gospel or a biblical propositions that God is a God of glory and that God is a, a God who went to the cross and God is a, a Holy Spirit who dwells in us to transform our lives. And based off of those propositions, we then move in a gospel way to draw in, to build up, and to send out. And so we're going to work our way through that. This morning we get to finish up kind of our first little streak through Discipline 1 and dealing with the heart. We, we put a heavy emphasis on Discipline 1 all year through BUILD, especially at the beginning. Um, next time we're together on, on the 31st of October, we'll start talking about the home. And we'll do a biblical survey on the household relationships there. Okay. Um, let's turn our attention to the quote and take off that little uh, <coughs> quotation from Piper's book, Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. It's this book. Um, it's one of my favorite kinds of books because it's this big. Okay. You can read a lot of really thick books, like for years. This will take just a matter of days to read. Um, this is a, one of my favorite. As I looked at the quote again, um, to get ready for this week, I reminded myself I need to read this again. I'm due to read this. This is a book you you got to get. You can afford it, trust me. And it's one that needs to stay close to your bedside or someplace where you can constantly pick it up and just keep reading it. It's very helpful. Here's what he says. <coughs> seeing and savoring Jesus Christ is the most important seeing and savoring you will ever do. Eternity hangs on it. One kind of seeing is with physical eyes and the other is with spiritual eyes. When we see with our spiritual eyes, we see the truth and beauty and value of Jesus Christ for what they really are. Thus, a blind person today may see Christ more clearly than many who have eyes. Savoring Jesus Christ is the response to this, to this kind of seeing. When you see something as true and beautiful and valuable, you savor it. That is, you treasure it. You cherish and admire and prize it. Spiritual seeing and spiritual savoring are so closely connected that it would be fair to say if you don't savor Christ, you haven't seen Christ for who he is. If you don't prize him above all things, you haven't apprehended his true worth. So may God give you eyes to see and hearts to savor. And this is what discipline one is all about. This is what drives you to go to the word of God because you want to see Jesus Christ so that you might savor him, so that you might treasure him, so that you might value him above all others. And this book is all about that. It gives you one glimpse after another of Jesus Christ so you can savor him. All right? Well, with that in mind, let's pray and let's jump into Hebrews 4 together this morning. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you so much for this opportunity to come together as men in the church. Thank you for the servants who made um, 
us feel so uh, at home and, and filled us up physically. Thank you. And we pray, Lord, that you'd bless Kendra and Hillary and uh, that you would help them to know your pleasure over them as they serve in such a selfless way and make sacrifices. God, that is evidence to us that your gospel is powerful in them. And um, Father, we just are grateful. And thank you for the chance to be together before your word. And Lord, we, we want to do what um, Piper has exhorted us to do. We want to see Jesus Christ, not just with our eyes of our head, but with the eyes of our heart. <coughs> but also that we might savor him and draw near to him and rejoice in who he is and be mesmerized again by uh, his beauty, his greatness, his worth. And Lord, we need to be men in the church who every time we come to God's word, this is the passion of our hearts, is to see him be unfolded before our eyes so that we might be filled up to the full with this precious and awesome Savior we have. For then we will have something to say to our roommates, we'll have something to say to our wives and our children. They will benefit greatly from what we have become and what we have seen. And um, Father, how this church will benefit from 40 men being full of Christ, full of love for Christ. So God, please do your work in us this morning. Come and draw near and, and give us your spirit in its fullness that we might truly apprehend what is in Hebrews 4. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, let's turn to Hebrews 4 and you can take out your uh, worksheet that will kind of give you some space there to take notes. We're going to continue talking about the heart this morning. But you're going to see the heart in a... This passage is not all about the heart, but it has a, the heart is a, it's a very important component to what's going on here. Um, and I guess I've, I've entitled this, this uh, message in the study, this, are you passionate for salvation's rest? Are you passionate for salvation's rest? And I'm like you, I enjoy rest. I'm a, I'm a male, I'm a man. And we enjoy rest, right? Sleep. Um, in fact, I would even say I have the spiritual gift of sleep. Um, I scare my wife by how quickly I fall asleep. Who else does the same thing? No. But there are times when I crave sleep and rest more than other times. And one of those times is the last Sunday night of every month after an elder meeting, which is after church, which is after preaching which is after a day of mental commitment to a passage of Scripture, unlike any of the other days, even though my mind is committed all the other days to it, I'm toast by the time we're done. And our elders' meetings on some, those Sunday nights go sometimes until 2.30 in the morning um, because we're, we just like being together so much. It's a good time. Uh, and that 10-minute drive home at 2.30 in the morning on Monday, first Monday every month, or whatever it ends up being, um, it seems like hours sometimes. I just want to get home. I just want to sleep. I would never choose to stay up till 2.30 in the morning any other day of the week. Those days are long gone. Okay? Those days are long gone. There's only one day, only one night every month that I ever even think and actually are excited to stay up till 2.30 in the morning. And it's elder meetings to be together with the guys. Um, all I want, though, on the way home is rest. I just want to sleep. Um, so I keep my foot on the accelerator. It never crosses my mind to slow down. And it never crosses my mind 
to pull the car over halfway home and take a nap. I could. I'm desperate for rest, but I'm not desperate for just any kind of rest. I'm, I'm desperate and I'm passionate about one kind of rest. It's the rest that I get when I'm at home, in my bed, sleeping there. I sleep the best there. Never crosses my mind to coast, to pull off to the side of the road, because the greatest rest I'll ever find is the rest that I get at home. And according to our passage, there's something of a parallel in the Christian life. Uh, and I want the attitude that is in Hebrews 4.11. Look at it with me. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest. Let us be diligent to enter that rest. Let us be passionate to enter that rest. The, the call here is to keep our foot on the gas, spiritually speaking. So this passage is a call to you guys this morning to wake up. To wake up, spiritually speaking, and to keep your foot on the gas, spiritually speaking. Um, if you're looking for another kind of rest than the that rest of this passage, this is a call to you to put that other rest aside and get this rest and no other rest. So our passage today leads us to be accelerating toward and passionate for God's rest. And God's rest in this context, is salvation. It's salvation rest. And it is the big sense of being saved. We, um, you, you might be confused sometimes when you come across the word saved or salvation in, in, in the scriptures because sometimes the Bible will talk about the fact that we were saved, right? And then you'll come across another verse and it'll say, we are being saved. And then you'll come across another passage in another place and it'll say, we will be saved. You see, salvation is that big. It's not just, well, we got fire insurance in the past, and then that's all salvation is. No, there's a sense in Scripture in which we are still being saved. And then there's a future tense where we won't ultimately be saved until heaven or until Christ returns. And it is that big salvation rest that is in mind here in Hebrews 4. In fact, um, Revelation 14, 13. Let me read it for you guys. You can write it down if you want. I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. Okay, that's heaven. There's a, there's a rest we get now in Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about that, but there is a an ultimate expression of that rest with him in heaven, yet to come. And this was so important for these recipients of the letters, of, uh, of the letter to the Hebrew Christians. They were Hebrew Christians. They, they, no doubt there were, there were some who were genuinely saved, and there were some who were not in their midst, just like any church. They left Judaism to follow Jesus Messiah. Um, they heard Jesus' words, so to speak, in Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30, where he said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. rest. That was a huge thing for Jesus to say. That was a signal word, rest, to the Jews, where they knew that there was only one who could bring rest. And for him to say that he was it, come to me, that was huge. Well, they had listened to that. They had followed that. But when their fellow countrymen, the other Jews, 
who did not believe in Jesus Messiah, when they began to persecute these Hebrew Christians for leaving Judaism, they took their foot off the gas, spiritually speaking. And they don't realize the danger that that poses for them. And this kind of thing has happened before, where believers or the ones who are supposed to be the believers take their foot off the gas. Prior to the coming of Christ, this happened over and over, where God's people in the past were tempted to not pursue God's great salvation. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, guys, this cannot happen to you. And guys, I want to say to you this morning, this can't happen to you either. This can't happen to any one of you where you would take your foot off the gas of being passionate for God's salvation rest. And that's the concern of the writer of Hebrews. So I've got the, the passage summarized for you there at the top of your page. Uh, what's this passage all about? It's this. Hebrews 4:11 to 13, we discover three passions of the Christian who diligently shepherds his heart into salvation's rest. Three passions of the Christian who diligently shepherds his heart into salvation's rest. And you'll notice on the page you actually have four that's because there's a bonus one given to you at the end, but there's only three in this passage, okay? We'll talk about that in a second. Let's talk, uh, let's talk about them in terms of questions. Here's your three questions. Number one, are you passionate to spend yourself? To spend yourself to enter the rest that comes from God. That's the first one, blank number one, to spend yourself. Look, what we're doing here is we're parachuting down into Hebrews 4.11, and we're struck immediately with the command, let us be diligent. Um, and so that's what I mean by spending yourself. The command means that there's nothing accidental that happens. There's nothing reflexive that happens. You know, like you doc hits your knee and your leg just goes and you didn't tell it to go. Being diligent has nothing to do with reflexive action. Rather, what this action is, is that it's, it's an action where you're especially conscientious about it. Um, you're very intentional in the action that you're undertaking. You're, you're concerned to discharge your obligation that is given to you. So that means you are to be zealous, you are to be eager, you are to be diligent, you are to be thoughtful about taking pains to achieve whatever comes next. And what comes next? Be diligent to enter that rest, to enter rest. And you notice, and I've been putting the emphasis on that rest, it's a rest that has already been mentioned. So you have all these signals as to why we need to do a big backup. We're parachuting in on verse 11. We need to do a big backup. Number one, the, the first signal is it's that rest. So we've got to figure out what that rest is. The second big key is just the word therefore. You always ask yourself when you see that word, what's the therefore? Therefore, right? So we've got to back up. <clears throat> Plus, just the command, there's a sense of urgency in the command to be diligent, right? So we're going to do the big backup. So here it is. The rest that is in the mind of the writer of Hebrews is a very big rest. It's no spiritual catnap he's talking about here at all. It is big spiritual salvation rest. And this is what God has always had on his mind at any point in redemptive history for his people. And to help those who believed in God enter that big salvation rest that God had for them. You know what God did in the past? He gave them all kinds of smaller rests that would help them get what rest is so that when they figured out, oh, these little rests, they would make them think of and be aware that there's a much bigger rest that these little rests all point to. Does that make sense? 
God gave them smaller rests that would help them think about the big spiritual salvation rest that God had for them. That's really a very merciful thing for God to do. It's like a dad who really ultimately wants his son to be on a mountain bike. An adult one. But he knows as a, as a three-year-old, he's going to need a tricycle. So he gives him a tricycle first. But the tricycle's not the end. The tricycle's not the point. The dad doesn't give it to him because when he's 18, he wants his son to still ride the tricycle. He wants his son to figure out how to maneuver. And that's what God was doing in the past. In God's mind, all of the smaller rests he gave, they were never the end. They were to point to something beyond themselves to a rest that was even greater. Let me give an example. You know what we're talking about here? We're talking about Israel, right? Israel had two kind of different sets of rests that were given to them from God. One was God gave them um, cycles of smaller rests. There are three kinds of rests that God gave them. There was the weekly Sabbath, right? Every week, seven days, a rest came around. That little cycle happened. It's a small little wheel turning. It goes over and over and it goes fast. Every week there was a reminder that there's rest. There's rest. There's rest. It comes in a, in a quick, a frequent repetition. And then every seventh year, there was a land Sabbath that came. They were to give the land a rest for a whole year. So every seven years, quick, rest came. Quick, it came, that rest. So every week, fast, then a bigger cycle of rest, it moved much slower, and then there was this really big rest at 50 years, the year of Jubilee, where if you had slaves or you had purchased land from somebody, it all went back to the Hebrew, and the slave went free if they wanted to go free. So in your lifetime, that would only come once. And you'd see that cycle of rest only come once. Not seven times, uh, or not, not once every seven days, not once every seven years, but once in a lifetime. Those are those smaller cycles of rest. Now, when were those smaller cycles of rest given to Israel? When? In the law. And where did they get the law? With Moses. And where did all of that happen? At Sinai, out in the wilderness. Before they ever got to the second kind of rest that God was going to give them, which was the promised land. So they had all of these cycles of rest in the wilderness before they ever got to the promised land. And the promised land was then to be another kind of rest for Israel that was to make them think about the bigger rest that God always intended for them in himself. Now I want you to look down at Hebrews 3, verse 7. Therefore, today, I'm sorry, therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me. And they saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. I, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my what? Wait a minute, they've already got all these cycles of rest. God, what are you talking about? They've got the, the weekly Sabbath, they've got the seven years, the, the land Sabbath, they've got the year of Jubilee. What are you talking about? They're not going to enter into your rest. That's because God's thinking about there's a bigger rest than these, right? Does that make sense? Now jump up down to Hebrews 4, verse 6. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, enter that rest, 
And those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. He again fixes, again, okay, that's what it was back in the wilderness, but again he fixes a certain day, today, saying through David. No, wait, where was David in Israel's history? He was their what? He was their king. Where, though? In the wilderness? No, in the promised land. So he's quoting from Psalm 95. That's what Psalm 95 is in Hebrews 3, 7 to 11. And he's building a whole sermon off of this. But over in chapter 4, verse 7, he get, he says, again, this happened. He, he fixes a certain day. Today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as has been said before, after the wilderness, in the promised land, the great King David in Psalm 95 says, today, in this promised land, as I, David, speak to you, Israel, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day. So you see what the point is here? Psalm 95 was written long after all of those smaller rests were given in the wilderness. It was written long after Joshua led Israel into the rest of the promised land. And Psalm 95 is concerned once again that the bigger salvation rest of God is being missed. It was being missed in the wilderness. It was being missed in the land. And now in David's day, in promised land, it's being missed. And he's concerned about that. You see, a pattern is being established here by the writer of the Hebrews. A pattern is developing. God's big salvation rest that he offers, it seems to be in perpetual danger of being missed. Even though Israel had all these little cycles of it that made them think beyond it, beyond those smaller ones to the bigger one. Even though the promised land was to make them think of a bigger salvation rest. Verses 9 and 10. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his so what he's talking about, this is a rest that is marked by abandonment of good works for the purpose of establishing self-righteousness. This is salvation rest. So let's allow the context here, or Hebrews, to inform us of our idea of this self-spending here. Can you say that sentence one more time? Abandonment of... Of good works for the purpose of establishing self-righteousness. Okay, so it's, it's that bigger rest that is now in the mind of the writer of Hebrews. Verse 11, be diligent to enter that rest. That rest. Be diligent. See, for the writer of Hebrews in his day, these Christians, the same concern is arising again. His readers, these Hebrew Christians, the persecuted church, they are in danger of what? missing salvation's rest in Christ. The perpetual danger of Christians in any age is what? That if we don't pay attention and if we're not diligent, we miss salvation's rest. We coast. We get satisfied with smaller rests. When God, get this, God established that his great salvation rest requires believers to be diligent. He set it up that way. That for you and I to be pursuing salvation's rest is not something that you can just casually do. Now you've got to 
be diligent. You've got to be thoughtful. There's nothing reflexive about this. Now, let's inform our minds here a little bit about um, the self-spending that we're supposed to do. Two basic fundamentals in spending yourself for salvation's rest. What are we talking about? Here, here's two things you can write down. Spend yourself to know. Spend yourself to know first. To know. To know what Christ accomplished at the cross for guilty sinners. You spend yourself to know that first. We're not talking about spending yourself to do anything to get saved. We abandon that. Spend yourself to know what Christ accomplished at the cross for guilty sinners. Let me give you an example of what the writer of Hebrews so far has said. Hebrews 1, verse 3. He is the radiance of his glory, Jesus is, and he is the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat down. He, he made purification for sins, propositional truth, you can be purified. He sat down. He's done. You need to spend yourself to know stuff like that. The gospel reality is like that. Go to chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That word propitiation means what? Satisfaction. Add to that word exhaustion. God's wrath was not just satisfied, but it was satisfied in that it was exhausted. There is nothing left in the cup. Every time you sin, God may, if, God, if it even crosses God mind, God's mind to go grab the cup of wrath because you sinned, if he looked at it, he's like, oh, nothing in it. There's nothing to pour out because it is exhausted. He made propitiation. He satisfied God's wrath. He exhausted it. You, for salvation's rest, you first and most, you spend yourself to know these things, to know these kinds of gospel truths. But you also spend yourself, secondly, in entrusting your life to them. You believe these things. You must know them. You must drag your carcass before them and expose yourself to them so you can know them for the purpose of trusting in them, believing in them, being satisfied in them. Biblical salvation is about you. It's about me diligently entrusting ourselves to gospel propositions, gospel truths, gospel realities that exist outside of you but that have an inevitable unavoidable impact on you inwardly, right? So this is not a diligence, get this, because in hearing all this diligence for entering salvation's rest, listen very carefully. This is not a diligence that springs from uncertainty about whether or not I'm purified. And this is not a diligence that springs from an uncertainty about, I'm not sure if God's wrath has been satisfied. That's not the way it is. That's what might what you think, but that's not the way it is. In fact, it's just the opposite. It is a diligence that flows from the certainty that I am purified and I have God's wrath been, has been propitiated by Christ for me. I'm just absolutely certain of that. See, what would it be like if a, two guys could get up every morning before the sun rises and run to a hillside with great eagerness to get there before it comes up and one guy is watching for it and it crests and he goes, 
I was so, I was so concerned. I, I didn't know if the sun was going to come up today. And I, I, I just I couldn't sleep anymore until I got here and I, I saw it. Because it, 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 it wasn't certain in my mind. The other guy runs up to the top of the hill because he knows it's coming up. And he's got to see it. And he's certain and he just loves the fact that it's always there. It's consistent. He trusts in it. But he just wants to see it. Now, which way is God's salvation? In which way are you to be diligent to enter that rest? You're certain. But what do we do with certain things? What do you know? When was the last time you got up to go see the sun? You don't care. You don't care. I don't care. But see, that's what we do in our flesh. We don't care about things that are certain. We, we get lazy about things that are certain. We take our foot off the gas and we coast about things that are certain. And God did not set up salvation to be that way. It's not a be diligent because you're not sure if you're saved. It's not a be diligent because you're not sure if you've been purified yet. You're diligent because you know you have been. And you want to act on those promises. And God set it up that way. Go to, go to Philippians chapter 1. Paul knew this. Philippians 1 verse 6. I'm not sure of this very thing. That he who be, no, I'm confident of this very thing. That he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That is certain. Paul says, I'm confident of this. Look at the end of verse 7. You are all partakers of grace with me. Go to chapter 2, verse 13. God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Realities. True. Grace realities. Facts. Verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because God is at work in you. You see, this is the way God designed salvation to be. We think because it's so certain and it's happened already, we have this view of salvation that's very small. It's something that happened in the past. I know, I guess I coast, I, I think. No, never. God never intended it to be that way. Perseverance of the saints. We endure. We press on. We are to be diligent to enter that rest. So here's the summary of this point. There's a lot here, isn't there? Go back to, go back to Hebrews 4. Let's make sure we conclude this first point, to spend yourself to, be, uh, to enter that rest from God. There's nothing accidental about us spending ourselves. You don't ever accidentally spend yourself. There's always an, an intentionality. And we are to be especially conscientious or intentional in our zeal to enter the great salvation rest that was achieved for us by Christ. And the question I wanted, uh, that I want to ask you is, is, is this your passion, guys? As, as men in Christ, is this our passion? so convicted by this because I, I know that my tendency is to coast, to rest in, a, in all the wrong ways, to, to think that yeah, it's, all, it's all been done. And, and I find that that slows me down 
that kind of thinking rather than speeding me up. Is this your passion? And is this your passion? Verse 11, look at the last half of it. To not fall. Be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of what? Disobedience. Is this your passion to not fall? Is this your passion to be to be concerned about the devastating power of unchecked disobedience? Unchecked disobedience. I'll say it again. Unchecked disobedience in your life. Are you passionate to be concerned about disobedience? Look at verse 18 of chapter 3. And to whom did God swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were what? Disobedient. Look at chapter 4, verse 6. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter that rest, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of what? Disobedience. You know what? This passage exposes that I'm far too unconcerned with my disobedience. So what's the answer? Preach the gospel to your disobedience. Preach the gospel to your disobedience. I remind you of Romans 6, kind of what we said. By grace, we have been united with Christ crucified and Christ raised from the dead. Why? So that we might powerfully be freed from the tyranny of sin. That's what you pre- preach to yourself in, in light of When your disobedience is standing bigger than you, looming over you, got you in the shadows, you take out your gospel light and you shine this on it. And you say, I have been freed by grace from the powerful tyranny of sin because I was united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection so that I might undoubtedly become slaves of obedience. Slaves of God. Slaves of righteousness. So you preach the gospel to your disobedience. So, are you passionate to spend yourself? How about number two? Are you passionate to search yourself? Verse 12. Are you passionate to search yourself? Let's talk about the big picture. Everybody knows verse 12, right? For the word of God is living and active. I mean, you memorize that, and you memorize it without seeing verse 11. Right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Did you know that that's not the main point? It's an explanation of the verse ahead of it. But does anybody know what 312 or 315 is? See, oh, we, look, memorize scripture and memorize four clauses and stuff, but look at them in their context. It's, it makes all of the difference. Let's talk about the big picture of this verse, and then we'll unpack it. Obviously, it, it's explanatory. Verse 12 is, this is the explanation given for why readers need to be diligent. Here's the short answer why you need to be gi- diligent. Because of God's word. You need to be diligent to enter that rest so that you don't fall and so that you don't go into that same example of disobedience because of God's word. You have no idea what it's doing. Whether you know it or not. You must understand what God's word is all about and you must understand what God's word does and what it's doing whether you know it or not. And most importantly, you need to know what it's doing with your heart. This is what Discipline One is all about, guys. The writer of Hebrews, he's already been making this very point about the heart. Uh, he's already pointed out the relationship between God's divine words 
and the human heart. Back up with me. Look at Hebrews 3, verse 7. This is again Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, if you hear his voice, the words of God, do not harden your what? So what is he saying? There's a relationship between my words, God says, and your heart. Verse 8. Do not harden your hearts. You see that there. Verse 10. I was angry with this generation. I said they always go astray in their heart. Verse 12. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving what? Heart. He's already been addressing the heart, hasn't he? Verse 15. He repeats Psalm 95 again today. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Chapter 4, verse 2. For indeed we have had good news preached to us. Just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. An emphasis on the word, emphasis on the heart. Verse 7, let's repeat it again. Hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. God has intended that his words would intersect your heart, guys, my heart. And the problem unveiled here by the writer of Hebrews is that our propensity is to make our hearts unreceptive to the words. We make them hard to the word. That's our propensity. And here the author has told us how effective the word of God is with our hearts. Verse 12, the word of God is living, it's active, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The heart. So the call of the writer of Hebrews in this entire section is this. If God's word is doing this, if God's word is searching out our inner recesses, then guys, befriend it. (laughs) Befriend what God's word is. Befriend God's word. Participate with God's word. Cooperate with God's word by giving it the platform from which it can be most effective in your life, in its searching. So this is what I, I mean in number two here, to make it a command. Search yourself, but not apart from God's word. Search yourself with God's word because God's word is already searching you. Entering God's salvation rest depends on you participating with God's word in your life. The only ones ever in in, in redemptive history, the only ones who entered the fullness of salvation's rest were the ones who humbled themselves before God's word and let his word come into contact with their hearts. Those are the only ones ever who enter salvation's rest. Now let's look at the specifics. Do you know what the very first word is in the Greek in verse 12? It's in the place of emphasis. That first word in, in, in a sentence in Greek is the, is the primary place of emphasis. When you want to give the, the one word in your sentence that you're trying to communicate and really give it the oomph, you put it at the front. And the word at the front is living. It's literally living for the word of God and active. So in other words, what's he trying to really say? It's alive. God's word is alive. It's living. It's living like he's living. Chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brethren, that there not be any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. The living God has a living word. And it's alive for this salvation rest that he wants to give. 
God's word lives to penetrate you. It lives to search me. It, learn, it lives to discern our hearts. It lives to achieve its scrutinizing gaze into the deepest recesses of our being. So, now, it's very important to understand that something can be alive, but it can be hibernating. Right? We watch planet Earth again. We watch these big old polar bears come out after hibernating. They were alive and very inactive. Things can be alive, but hibernating. Things can be alive, but paralyzed. Things can be alive, but in a coma. Things can be alive, but in a cocoon. I just read of a, a story of a, a woman in um, like Norway or Sweden. She was uh, um, training to be a surgeon. And she was cross-country skiing, and she went off an edge, and she went into a frozen river, and she broke through the frozen river, but her skis stayed on, and so she's upside down, head first, in the river, frozen river, and her skis are on top, and she can't get out. And the people who are with her can't get her out. She was under the water for 40 minutes, frozen water for 40 minutes. They finally got a helicopter there. They, they, they flew her to the hospital. For three hours, her heart was not beating. But they decided that they weren't going to go with clinical death until, and here I am talking all this stuff, and the nurse shows up today. <laughs> to clarify all this, Jacob. They decided they weren't going to do anything until her body was back to room 10 or 98, unless they could get it back to 98.6. And after three hours, her heart started beating. Um, 60 days, she was in intensive care, and 35 of those days, she was on a ventilator to breathe for her. And she had paralysis for a while, and within five months, she was back at work working. And she was alive, sort of. She wasn't very active. What you say next after living is very important. What does he say next? The word of God is living and active. It's energetically alive. It's energetically alive, God's word is, for God's intentions and God's purposes in your heart. Now, I want you to imagine with me for a second something you've probably seen. People don't do it very much anymore. But imagine a large crowd, a bunch of people sitting there, um, and, and someone blows up and begins to bat around beach ball. Remember that? And that ball looks like it's alive. And man, is it energetic. It is going everywhere. It comes one person, and they hit it as hard as they can, and it goes flying in that direction. Next thing you know, a guy hits it, and it goes in a, in a at an angle counter, completely counter to the one it was going, and just as fast the other way, and it's just flying all over the place, right? One person bats it energetically this way, and then another person bats it into a, a different um, trajectory than the one it was just on. That beach ball is living and it's active and it's soft and it's harmless and it is subject to every will that hits it. Every will that hits it. Right? And you know what that is? That is the way most people are doing church and Bible study these days. We all get together and we just bat around God's word. It's soft. It's subject to what I think. Here's what I think God's word means. Here's what it means to me. What do you think it means to you? You know what I want? I want somebody to stand up and pull out a two-foot sword in front of everybody and just throw it up in the air. <laughs> because that's what God's word is. It is living. It is active. And it is sharper 
any two-edged sword. It doesn't say it is a sharp sword. It says it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It is the handheld sword that a Roman soldier would use. It's sharp on both sides. It was his sharpest instrument. It was the last line of defense. When the, when the broadsword got knocked down, the shield was gone, and the guy was coming upon you, it was the one you grabbed, and you went hand-to-hand combat on, and you could trust that when it touched the other guy, it was going to do some damage. That's the image Paul grabs. It is a two-edged sword, and it's sharper than any one of those. That's God's word. When we come into the presence of God's word, guys, listen, we should give no impression to ourselves. And we should give no impression to anyone else that our wills are supreme over God's word. Rather, what we do when we come into the presence of God's word is we get real low and we get real humble. We humble ourselves. We, we carefully place ourselves under the sharpest of all instruments that is in the one hand of God guiding it perfectly. Here's where you can watch for this probably most. Here's where I see it most in my own life when I fail to get this. Guys, when we stand around and we theologically spar, talking about batting around theological ideas, let me just ask you this. Think of the last one you were in, the theological sparring. Did the word of God seem more like a beach ball or did it seem like a two-edged sword? Most of my theological sparrings that I've seen is a bunch of guys, bat, election, bat, predestination, bat, atonement, bat. That's what we do. Sovereignty. Oh. God is living, it's active, and sharp. We should be very, very careful very, very humble, very, very gentle. Because God's word is not something you throw around. The description keeps on building. It's sharp in order to, to penetrate deeply and accurately. Look, it's, it's sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow. Now, there's lots of debate about what's being said here in, in soul and spirit. I, I I think it becomes easy to lose sight of the forest because of these two trees. I, I think the point is just simple. Look, I don't have the ability to spiritually see, to spiritually get, to spiritually distinguish the difference between soul and spirit. I just, I can't tell you the difference between the two. I don't have the ability to see it. The Word of God can. The Word of God can go to where I can't see. And it can see plainly. The word of God lives with activeness and with sharpness to penetrate that which I can't see and reveal it. And what I can't see physically with my own eyes, like where my joints and my marrow all come together and form, I can't see that through my skin. The word of God can like get to places like that that I can't see. What is hidden from my sight in my inward being is not hidden at all from God's word. So this is kind of an accumulation of terms, soul and spirit, joints and marrow, to express the inward part of man that God's word has no trouble saying. It's an accumulation of terms to express the inward part of man that God's word has no trouble penetrating. But that's not all it says. It comes to a final climactic 
and and it's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That word to judge means that it is the great critic of your heart. God's word is the great critic of my heart. It's legal terminology. The word of God does not open me up and lay me bare and then step away and say, hey, you step forward and give your opinion of what you see here. God's word opens us up and lays everything bare so that it can give its judgment, its criticism, its opinion. It judges. It discerns. We are opened up so it can give its opinion, its rebuke. It's, it's open, it opens us up so it can give us its approval, where we deserve God's approval. Here's a little something of what I know in my own heart, guys. And maybe you can identify with this. My motives and my thoughts and my intentions are so intertwined and twisted together in my heart. I have good thoughts and I have sinful thoughts. I, I'm up and I'm down and they are so entangled together in the deep maze and the labyrinth that my heart is. I truly have trouble, in all honesty, discerning what is up and what is down and what is good and what is evil when I am left to my own discernment. But I usually have no trouble discerning everybody else's motive. In and of myself, guys, I can't search effectively to see what's going on in there. Do you remember Jeremiah 17:9? The heart is desperately wicked and sick, and who can discern it? In and of myself, I can't search effectively to see what's going on there. But guess what? This is exactly what God's word does. It enables me to search and see my own heart. I can see myself as God were as God's word sees me can search myself as God's word searches me. So it's very wise for me, it's very wise for you to participate with God's word in the searching. And you know what? It's completely foolish. It's completely foolish to think that I can bluff my way out of anything with God. It's foolish for me to think that I can have secrets hidden from God in my heart. It is foolish for me to think that I can keep my thoughts and my motives to myself from God. Here's the blunt reality. What I hold most secret, the God of the Word finds with the Word of God and he subjects it to his scrutinizing gaze. And this is why we say, discipline one, shepherd your heart with the Word of God. Position your heart before God and his Word so that his Word gives you accurate perspective on what and where your heart is. And again, all of this is given in verse 12 as the explanation for why we should spend ourselves to enter salvation's rest. Listen, God's word is searching us. His word has always functioned this way. The warning existed long ago. Chapter 3, verse 7 again. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. I swore in my wrath they will not enter my rest because they didn't listen to my word and their hearts were hard to it. So what should we do? Well, we could try to fight that, I guess. And people did that. Very religious people throughout the ages have fought God's word and kept their hearts hard and tried to stand up to him and they perished eternally. Or you can plead with God for a different attitude before his word. God, keep me from hardening my heart. Plead for a careful, humble, participative heart and attitude so that you can desire 
to see what it sees in you. Because what's at stake, guys? Salvation. Thirdly, closely related to the second passion is our last passion. Strip yourself. So the second one is search yourself before the word of God or with the word of God. Thirdly, strip yourself before the God of the word. Verse 13. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Verse 12 described the word of God, what it does and sees. Verse 13 describes what the God of the word sees. If verse 12 describes how we truly are before the word of God, verse 13 describes how we truly are before the God of the word. So are you passionate to strip yourself before the God of the word? If you've searched yourself with God's word and it's revealed to you guys that maybe you're wearing a mask, got a shield up to hide other people from seeing, that you've got a disguise going over your heart, there's no use in pretending that God doesn't see through it. See, because you and I, we're not hidden from his sight. Verse 13, no creature is hidden from his sight. Rather, you and I are open. That word is naked. We're naked before God. God is fully aware of everything in us at the heart level. Masking or disguising what we are before God is about as effective as a child, a little girl. I used to watch my girls do this work, Krim, play hide and seek, and they knew it was their turn to hide, and so this is the way they hid. <laughs> they just covered their eyes because mom can't see me. Thinking you can hide whatever is going on inside you from God is about as wise as a little child doing that before its mom. And we are laid bare to the eyes of him. It's hard to know what this laid bare means. Some think it's uh, when you when you lifted the head of the sacrificial animal to split its throat. It was laid bare. Some think it was uh, a wrestling move that they used to use in the Olympic Games where you would get your opponent down into a hold where he was laid bare and there was nothing else he could do but cry uncle. Okay? Um... It's difficult to tell the precise meaning, but at a minimum, it is parallel to the word naked or open. It's open and laid bare. So most likely, I think it's a lifting up of the chin because it has that sense of lifting up the face so as to have full face-to-face contact, eye-to-eye contact with God. Do you know what I need most, guys, as a Christian man, as a Christian husband, as a Christian dad, as an elder in a church, do you know what I need more than anything? I need to see that I am seen by God perfectly. What did you do with your kids when they were little? And you still do this when they get older. When you're talking with them, you grab that precious little face between your hands and you just turn it ever so gently and you make them look up at you. Sometimes you're tempted to lift the little body off the ground. (laughs) If you're startled by that, you know that I said it, but you thought it. (laughs) But you do that. We still do that today with our kids. We're like, look, you need to look at me. I want to see your eyes. Look, where are my eyes? Why? Because you want your child to know that, dude, I see it all. 
There's nothing you're hiding here. And that's what God is after. He's full aware of everything in us at the heart level. You and I are naked and we are laid bare in the sense that we are seen exactly as we truly are and we need to see that we are seen by God. We need to see that we are seen by God exactly as we are. And if that's the case, if God already right now sees us as we truly are, here's my suggestion. Surrender. (laughs) Surrender. Don't fight it. Don't fight it. He's no longer your judge. He's your father. If he sees you stripped down to the heart, don't fight. Instead, drop the mask. Drop the disguise in order to communicate to God that you get it. God, you see me. You under, I understand that, that you see me for what I truly am. Here's the foolish mask I was holding. It's gone. Because God stripped it off a long time ago anyway in his mind. <clears throat> Strip yourself because nothing is hidden from God in the end. And at the end of verse 13, it's him with whom we have to do. That literally means that we just have to give an account to him. Guys, you know what would be the most... Can you imagine this? That the first time that a man would actually be stripped naked before God is judgment day in his mind. The first time he drops the mask is when he's standing before the Lord. Guys, it doesn't have to be that way. Because there's safety in the gospel for you to be able to drop the mask and not be judged on the spot for what you really are, but for Christ to be judged. To bear to bear the, the impurities. You can be purified. You, you can be, uh, you're, the wrath towards you can be propitiated. It's too late at judgment day. So rather search yourself now because that's what the word of God is doing whether you acknowledge it or not. So here's how I would put the, the, the spend yourself, search yourself, and strip yourself all together in one sentence. Think about this. Search yourself now with the word of God Search yourself now with the word of God so that you might strip yourself before the God of the word. All so that you might what? Spend yourself in the salvation rest of God. And the question from this passage is, are you passionate for this? Well, I've I've added one more passion that I think needs to be said in the presence of these other three passions. Um, And it's this. Number four, are you passionate to soak yourself in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Verses 11 to 13 are very much in a warning section of scripture. It's heavy. You can't walk away from that feeling light and bubbly and bouncy. You you walk away from that feeling very sober. You, You walk away from that feeling very convicted. Maybe there's a a tremendous sense of guilt upon you right now because you know you're not spending yourself, you're not searching yourself, and you're not stripping yourself before God. Well, you know what you need to do, Christian brother? And I don't even want to assume that all of you are Christian brothers. I don't know your heart. Um, Regardless of where you are, soak yourself in the gospel. The writer of Hebrews knows that at this point what his readers need to hear next. Look what he says in verse 14. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. 
Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. We have a high priest. And that high priest is the one who back in chapter 1, verse 3, made purifications of sins and he sat down. There's nothing more for him to be up about and doing. It's done. He sits before God. Preach this to yourself. That great one, chapter 2, verse 17, became a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Guys, that's the gospel. Soak yourself in the gospel so that if the eyes of your heart haven't been opened to see your true need for a Savior, they might be opened to see his salvation. That your eyes would be opened to see his atoning works. That your eyes would be opened to see the new heart that he gives. He doesn't call you to follow him with that old, crusty, sinful heart. He gives a new one. Your eyes need to see that. Your eyes need to be opened to see that it's, it's faith by grace. It's repentance you can begin a whole new life with new passions to spend yourself, to search yourself, to strip yourself, and to keep on soaking yourself in the gospel. Guys, soak yourself in the promises of the gospel that still flow to you from the right hand of the majesty on high. He's sitting down and they flow to you from there. Verse 15 and 16. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Are you weak in this, guys? Are you weak in this? Are you weak in spending yourself? I am. But we have one who's been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy. Anybody need mercy in regards to this today? I need some. I need a bunch. Then we might find grace. Do you want to find grace? I'm. There better be grace <laughs> with the way that I live. To help. Anybody need help? In a time of need. Is this a time of need? Hello? Did the writer of Hebrews know what we needed to hear after that heavy warning? Oh, you got to soak yourself in the promises that he made to us in Christ. One last passage, chapter 7, verse 25. Soak yourself in this. He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He's able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since, it doesn't say this, since they keep on keeping on. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. It was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, but because this he did once for all when he offered up Himself, He keeps his promises to save you to the end. Soak yourself. Let's pray, and then we will spend some time in small groups this morning. Father in heaven, we flee to the cross again, and we flee to the empty tomb to tell our hearts once again what they're so easily hardened to, and that is the promises of what you have done in your Son. We flee to the cross to remind ourselves of the safety that we have, of the salvation that we have, that we will receive, that we are receiving. And we want to be diligent in preaching the gospel to ourselves so that we might be diligent to enter your rest in Christ and Father, help us again with this first discipline to really understand what your word is doing 
with us. It's searching our hearts. It's exposing what is there. The Word of God does this so the God of the Word sees. And Father, I pray that we would not be men who would try to fight what your Word is doing, but that we would be men who cooperate with your Word, who befriend it, who love it, and use it like a light to see our hearts by. Um, So God, please work in us. And, And Father, please offer the comfort today in the Gospel. We are men who are before the throne of grace even now, and we confess we need grace, we need mercy. We are in a time of need as we think about these things. We need help, and you offer it. And you are able to save forever those who come to you through Christ. So we we rest even now in the gospel as we diligently pursue the ultimate rest that is yet to even come. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Guys, we're going to transition to small groups here for just a minute. Um, take out your homework for today that's in your little packet that came today. It's the green sheet. Take that out. I'm looking at your calendar, the next time we're together is in two Saturdays from now, October 31st. Um, please do not come dressed up. <laughs> okay. Yeah, or you, yeah, only if you come dressed up as Martin Luther. That's, that's a good one. Reformation Day. All right, um, October 31st. And as I said, we will be meeting, uh, talking about the home, and we're going to do a, a survey through Scripture on the home, just like we did a survey through Scripture on the heart a couple of times. Remember how we did that? We're now going to do that with the home. Um, so your homework for today that you're going to do for next time uh, before you go to small group, so you need to make sure you have your homework from last time. What color was that one? Blue. 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 Okay. I just have white copies of them, and so I'm missing those. Um, so you need to make sure you have that blue copy when you go to small groups, because I'm sure you're going to be spending your time talking about those in small groups. But your green sheet. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about the heart for next time, and we're going to anticipate discipline two on the home, and then just some other miscellaneous stuff. Question number one, how have you done this last month in bringing your heart before God through his word? Okay, so when you get to the 31st of October, you will have by that time been a month reading God's word. I just want you to honestly lay it out there in that space there. How have you done in bringing your heart before God through his word? Hebrews 4 gets to inform you a little bit more about why you want to do that, why it's important to do that. So just be detailed about how you're doing, okay? Be honest. And question two, where would you like to be by the end of April 2010? with this discipline. Here's the hard thing for us. We are such a, a culture of instant gratification. We are the microwave culture. We are the we are the um, we're the drive-through culture. I just saw that they now make an oven that on its burner will boil water in 90 seconds. And instantly coveted it. It was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> instantly boils water and I instantly covet. Um, but, but here's what here's the point. We, we have a hard time. We, we, we put so much pressure on ourselves that I need to be everything right now that God wants me to be. And I just, that's so discouraging because I can't be. I, I can't read my Bible enough today. I can't read my Bible enough tomorrow. I can't. Yeah, but you know what, guys? Back off. And, and Lord willing, you're going to have a lifetime. So just think. Just think forward to April when we're done with build. What do you want to be? And take a step today. Take a step. Nobody's asking you to run a marathon today. 
but you need to be in better shape in April than you are now, right? And that's what we want to be here for each other, to help each other and to encourage each other. So give some thoughts to that. Where do you want to be by the end of April 2010? Question three, in anticipation of uh, discipline two, on the home, what's the current spiritual attitude and atmosphere in your home that you have set? They were talking about you, no blame shifting. My home is a tough house to be in because of the people I live with. None of that. Think about what have I done to contribute to the spiritual atmosphere of the home that I live in, the household relationships I have, and be specific and honest. And then on a different note, I just like to know this. I ask this every year. What do you think God is doing in our church during this season of life and ministry? I've asked this from the first year we started build. It was the first year. It was 2004 um, when we did build the first time, and we were meeting over at Tempe High in the auditorium, and we met in the office over there with about 25 guys, and and I asked the same question then, and so it's fun to watch just each year how you guys perceive God's work in the church and what you think he's doing in the season of life and ministry, and what is he trying to accomplish among us? What do you think he's trying to teach us right now? And then question five, how do you think the uh, how do you think the work he wants to do in you personally coincides with that work in the church because your life is a part of this body? So there's your homework for next time, okay? Any questions on that? Any questions about going into small groups next?